Good morning. We've got three short readings today. First one is in Genesis. Chapter 1 from 26. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Second reading is from Romans 1. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, been understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they know God, they neither glorify him as God nor give thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal being and birds and animals and reptiles. And then the final passage is from Romans 8. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Thank you, Lindsay. Um, sorry, I am going to pull this out. I did warn Chris. Uh, well, it's lovely to be here with you today. Um, can I ask, if you don't have a copy of the handout as you came in, to make sure you get one, this talk is not going to make a lot of sense unless you can see uh, this insert, um, which has got, uh, covers everything that I'm going to talk about today. Um, there's a couple of quotes there, some Bible references, and some notes that will help you to follow along. Uh, thanks very much to Catherine for bringing that around. Um, the other thing that you'll find, if you didn't get one at the door on the way in, is a copy of the Jesus Week newsletter from uh, the recent Jesus Week mission outreach that we had on campus. I know you heard about it and you've been praying for it, particularly hearing from uh, Jack and Bronwyn and Bethany. Um, but uh, we put that newsletter together really to encourage all those who pray for the ministry just about what God is doing. So uh, now, don't read that now. I can see you, Darcy. Oh, sorry. No, that's being a bit rude. Uh, that's for you to take away, um, just for your encouragement. And can I say, look, on an ongoing basis, please do talk, uh, particularly with the students and the staff who work uh, on campus. I know they delight to tell and share just something of the wonder that it is of God working amongst students. So um, do make the most of that. Um, ben, can you hold this? Is 
Terrific. Thank you. Okay. Well, um, can I say uh, also um, it's a real privilege and delight to be here with you today. Um, normally I am in my home church on a Sunday morning, but uh, Ben and I have been talking about this for a while. And as part of, I guess, the final talk in your series, thinking about gender and sexuality, I'm really glad to be able to be here this morning just to help um, us think a little bit about this tricky question of transgender. Um, there will be a Q&A afterwards, which I know is for the whole series, but particularly from today. So if you have any questions, please do store them up and make sure you ask Ben and Kate um, what they think. Uh, so we'll, we'll get there in a little while. Um, if you look at the handout, you'll see what I'm going to cover. I'm going to talk about some basic definitions, uh, think about what the Bible has to say on this topic, and then try and think particularly about implications of how we live, um, recognising that there's much that is very, very murky in this topic. Let me start by asking you what would be your honest reaction if a trans person walked into church this morning? What would your honest reaction be? Uh, it might be outrage. It might be just shrug shoulders. Ah, no biggie. That's what life's like these days. Or it might actually be delight. How wonderful to have you here with us today. Please come and join us. What would your honest reaction be if a trans person walked into church this morning? Uh, can I say that as we start this talk, uh, clearly I can't do justice to the whole topic in the next 30 minutes or so. Um, I want to say up front that I'm no expert in this area. Um, I didn't train as a biologist or a psychologist. I don't experience gender dysphoria myself. It's worth me saying that. Uh, but what I am is a Christian who wants to sit under God's word. Uh, and so today what I hope to do, I suspect for many of us for the first time, is help start a conversation and give you some tools to think through this topic for yourself and not just sweep it under the carpet, which, to be frank, is what most Christians have done in the West for the last two or three decades. In saying that, what I'm doing is warning you there are going to be no easy solutions or answers to the questions posed by transgenderism and gender dysphoria. It is an emotive topic. Christians disagree, not just with the world around us, but with each other. Um, and so, in fact, my suspicion is that by the end of this talk, some of you will think that I've gone too far in what I'm saying, and some of you will think I haven't gone far enough. So here's my goal... My goal is I want to help us better care for people in our community who want to bring honour to Jesus. I'll say it again. I want to help all of us better care for people in our community who want to bring honour to Jesus. And in framing my goal that way, I trust you can see this has got something for all of us today. Okay, with that in mind, I have a look at where I want to begin with the rather boring topic of definitions. But I want to do that because I'm aware that in this area... Uh, Often we're talking about different things and not the same things with each other. So let me start with some definitions. Transgender, taking just standard definitions here, uh, I took them from dictionary.com, so there's no particular bias or agenda in the versions that I picked. But um, transgender, a person whose gender identity does not correspond with that person's biological sex assigned at birth. Person whose gender identity does not correspond with that person's biological sex assigned at birth. Now, of course, you ask, what is biological sex? That's relatively straightforward, I think. Biological sex is whether a person is male or female uh, in terms of their chromosomes, you know, XX or XY, 
in terms of their gonads, so testes or ovaries, in terms of their sexual anatomy, whether or not they have a penis or a vagina. That's biological sex. That's relatively uncontested, although some people might have something to say about that, but that's relatively straightforward. Gender identity, uh, this might be a new term for you, gender identity is a person's internal sense of their own gender, person's internal sense of their own gender, whether male or female or, as you might have heard the phrase, non-binary. Male, female or non-binary, that is gender identity is how you see yourself. Okay, biological sex, gender identity, transgender is a person whose gender identity doesn't correspond with their biological sex. Second definition I want to um, speak about briefly, and this will be new for some of us, is that of gender dysphoria. What I've done again is I've given you a standard definition here. Gender dysphoria is a psychological condition marked by significant emotional distress and impairment in life functioning caused by a lack of congruence between gender identity and biological sex assigned at birth. A psychological condition marked by significant emotional distress and impairment in life functioning caused by a lack of congruence between gender identity and biological sex assigned at birth. Now the key, key phrase here is a lack of congruence. A lack of congruence, it's the sense of a misalignment or of being out of sync. And uh, I'll give you a quote there from a fellow called Mark Yarhouse. He's a Canadian psychologist and theologian. His book at the top is excellent on this particular topic, uh, Understanding Gender Dysphoria. Here's what he says. He says, um, this is a mismatch between one's psychology and one's biology. A mismatch between one's psychology and one's biology. What that means is that most, although not all, but most transgender people experience trans, uh, gender dysphoria. Does that make sense? Most transgender people, not all, but most, experience gender dysphoria. That is, a psychological condition marked by significant emotional distress and impairment in life functioning caused by the mismatch between their psychology and their biology. And uh, just to really kind of emphasize that point, uh, in case you're wondering if you've not heard of this word dysphoria before, most of us know the word euphoria. A euphoria, if you're euphoric, you're uh, elated, joyful, everything is going great. Dysphoria is just the opposite. <laughs> so the exact opposite of everything that's good. Trans people often describe, and you'll have heard phrases like this, feeling like they're a man trapped in a woman's body, uh, or vice versa. And for just a moment, what I'd like all of us to do is to try and imagine what it would be like if every day of your life, from the moment you woke up until the moment you fell asleep, and for reasons entirely beyond your knowledge or control, you felt you were in the wrong skin. Can you imagine what that would be like? Uh, to draw a very poor comparison to highlight the distress that a trans person often feels, I want to ask, somewhat cheekily, if anyone here is completely comfortable and at ease with every part of their body. None of us are, are we? All of us, as best I can tell, 
want to change something about ourselves. Uh, And so in a bid to alleviate this kind of distress, a trans person might try various approaches. Uh, They might try cross-dressing, perhaps in private, then in public. They might consider hormonal treatment. And at a most extreme, they might look at surgical options, uh, gender reassignment. Now, let me just point out at at this stage, um, transgender is not about the very rare cases of intersex. So, you know, LGBTI, the I I stands for intersex. Intersex is a situation where a person's biological sex can't be clearly identified as either male or female in terms of anatomy. Uh, It's a very rare condition. That's not what we're talking about. And equally, this is really important to hear, Transgender is not about sexual preference. It's about identity and how you see yourself. One of the questions people often ask is how prevalent uh, is um, transgenderism in our community? It's very hard to tell. Uh, There's not a lot of statistical evidence, but I think most of us would acknowledge that it's a small percentage of the population, although probably more than what we think, just given the stigma that's been attached to it in the past. In our current cultural context, transgender is one example of the view that how you feel about yourself gives you the right to be accepted by society on your terms. All right. It's a bit of information I've thrown at you. Are you still with me? Okay, all right. This is just the definitions part. Uh, Let's get into then what the Bible has to say at point two. What does the Bible have to say? Now, the first thing for me to say here is that the Bible doesn't directly address the topic of gender dysphoria. Uh, Not surprisingly, it's in a sense a relatively new phenomenon, at least in terms of uh, its observation and articulation. But what the Bible does say is an awful lot about identity and who we are. And I've picked just three aspects uh, which come from each of the readings uh, that Lindsay brought to us to kind of sketch out a theological framework to thinking about transgenderism. You'll see each of the points there on your handout. Firstly, we have been created male and female in the image of God from Genesis 1. Now, as you're well aware, Genesis 1 teaches many things. Uh, I want to point out just two that are relevant to this topic today. Uh, The first is that all of God's creation is good. All of God's creation is good. It's very good, in fact, the repeated refrain throughout Genesis chapter 1. And what that means is that every human being, however they might see themselves, has great dignity and worth in God's sight. He sees what he's made and he says that it is good. And that assurance actually is confirmed in the fact that Jesus Christ laid down his life to save everyone who trusts in him. That's how good and valuable we are. Second thing to say from Genesis 1 is that although we are all of value in God's sight, in fact of equal value, God has made us male and female. That was the point of the reading that Lindsay brought to us before. God has made us male and female. That is, God has made us with equal value and worth and dignity, but with distinctly different sexes. And in fact, with distinctly different roles. 
as Genesis 2 will go on to show. What that means is that in some way, by displaying maleness and femaleness, we are manifesting the glory of God the Maker. And we're doing it in a way that the whole world can see. Now, I haven't tried to say how that's the case. I'm just stating the fact that in some way, being male and female, made by God in a creation he says is good, uh, that actually reminds the whole of creation of what God is like. Okay, that's the first thing to say. We've been created male and female in the image of God. Second thing to say, and this is from the Romans 1 passage, every part of every one of us is corrupted by sin. Every part of every one of us is corrupted by sin. You see, sadly, the magnificent picture of God's good creation in Genesis 1 and 2, it gives way immediately in Genesis 3, as you know, to our rejection of God and his plans for creation. We see the devastating effects of sin throughout the Old Testament. Eventually, by the time we come to Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul concludes that sin has corrupted everything in God's good creation, including every part of every one of us, our body, our mind, and our spirit. So Romans 1 verse 21, Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, all of us here today are familiar with the effects of sin on our physical bodies. Uh, You see that in the decay that advances with years and, well, you know, if you haven't experienced yet, you will soon enough. And yet what Romans 1.21 is reminding us is that it's more than just our bodies that have been corrupted by sin, it is our minds as well. What I think that means is that sin has compromised even our ability to think clearly about God and ourselves. And that means that if our capacity for self-perception and self-understanding has been distorted, quite frankly, we ought not be that surprised when a trans person can say they feel out of sync with their body, they feel like they're trapped in the wrong skin. That oughtn't surprise us one bit. Now, please don't mishear me. I would never say to a trans person, it's all in your mind. Because actually, I'm trying to say something bigger to every single one of us. I'm trying to say that the Bible insists that sin corrupts every part of us in every way, and that's why there is so much hurt and brokenness in our world. Well, let me just pause for a moment, try and make an important qualification and also draw out an important implication. Let me start with the qualification. Romans 1 doesn't mean that a particular individual experiences gender dysphoria because they've committed a particular sin. Do you remember when Jesus is asked about the man who's born blind in John chapter 9? Jesus point-blank refuses to attribute his particular suffering in this case to the effect of particular sin. What that means is that we just don't know, I think, why some people are transgender. Our scientific data is inconclusive, which at one level provides some measure of relief to parents who anguish if they have a trans child, did we do something wrong? 
Here's the implication. The implication is that if all of us have corrupt bodies and minds, then really none of us has any right to look down on anyone else. You can see that, can't you? If all of us have corrupt bodies and minds, none of us has any right to look down on anyone else. That's the worst kind of hypocrisy. What I'm trying to say is that this level playing field that I'm describing, it ought to make us more compassionate for trans people. Or to put it as bluntly as I can, transphobia is completely unchristian. Transphobia is completely unchristian in every way. Now, I've talked about two aspects of what the Bible has to say. If that's all that it had to say, then, quite frankly, we would aspire to empathy, but we'd have no real hope to offer. Which, thankfully, brings us to the wonderfully good news of the gospel. And so the third and final point on the left-hand side there, Christians are being conformed to the image of Christ. Christians are being conformed to the image of Christ. Have a look at Romans 8, 28 again. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn amongst many brothers and sisters. Here in Romans chapter 8, Paul is using a beautiful image to describe what God's great intervention in his world looks like. He describes us as children of God children of God, with Jesus as our big brother. It's very dramatic, isn't it? I could say something about the Holy Spirit, but that would be inappropriate. (laughs) Thanks, guys. Um, Paul is describing what God has done for us in terms of us being children of God, with Jesus as our big brother, and here's the really remarkable thing in verse 29, all of us at this very moment being conformed to the image of Christ, being conformed to the image of Christ. Now, whatever that means, whatever it means for us to be made in the, uh, formed in the image of Christ, um, can I say, well, it must mean more than just physical I mean, after all, Jesus was a Jewish man who died in his early 30s. And I presume that's not the kind of image that we're being conformed to. Rather, I think more likely is that we are being conformed to the image of Christ in terms of his character. And I think at this point of Galatians 5 and the fruit of the Spirit that describe the work of God in our lives. Now, once again, if we're all Christ's younger siblings, if we're all beloved children of our Heavenly Father it means we must share the same honoured status. Uh, Even if in the New Testament there's an expectation of differentiated gender expression, uh, particularly in God's family, in marriage or in the church, which I understand you've spent some time thinking about in a previous week. In fact, I presume that even in heaven, when we have been fully conformed to the image of Christ those differences will still be apparent. Like, I take it that in eternity, Jeff will still be recognisably Jeff, and Catherine will still be recognisably Catherine, and Jeff won't be Catherine, and Catherine won't be Jeff. Like, there still will be some differentiation. But whatever will be then 
God's work is incomplete now. We are all, to use the phrase, works in progress. And that means that then the big question for us is, how do we live in the gap between God's certain promises and their final fulfilment when Christ returns? How do we live in the gap in the here and now? And so if you turn to the right-hand side of your handout, point three then, let me try and think about some implications of what it means to live in the gap in this topic of gender dysphoria. I want to say two things. Um, So I want to talk in two areas. Firstly is theologically, that is how do we hold together the whole biblical witness? And then I want to reflect pastorally, what do we do when a trans person walks into church? Well, firstly, let's start with the theological. How do we hold together the whole biblical witness? The way I've sketched this out is that I've said there are three biblical strands. The fact that we've been wonderfully made by God, the fact that sin corrupts everything, even our minds, and the fact that we are all works in progress. We're not quite yet the new creation. How do we hold those three strands together? Well, what I want to do is I want to use Mark Yarhouse's concept of lens to help us focus on the issues, because what Mark Yarhouse says is that actually um, we need all three lens, all three perspectives to some degree. So let's try and see why and how. I've given you a quote there. Let me read it out. This is from Mark Yarhouse. He talks about the integrity lens, the disability lens, and the diversity lens. The integrity lens views sex and gender in terms of the sacred integrity of maleness and femaleness stamped on one's body. Cross-gender identification is a concern because it threatens to dishonour the creational order of male and female. The disability lens views gender dysphoria as a result of living in a fallen world in which the condition is a disability, a non-moral reality to be addressed with compassion. And the diversity lens sees the reality of transgender persons to be celebrated, honoured or revered. In its strongest form, it sees deconstruction of sex and gender. Okay, let me try and explain what he's talking about because he uses, talks about three different lenses. Uh, Let's start with the easiest one. The first one is the diversity lens. Look at the quote again. The diversity lens sees the reality of transgender persons to be celebrated, honoured or revered. In its strongest form, it seeks deconstruction of sex and gender. Given what we saw in Genesis 1 about us being made male and female, uh, the diversity lens in its strongest form, that is the abolition of gender, I think is problematic for Christians. The diversity lens in its strongest form, it's problematic for us who are Christian. Some examples of this, um, you might have seen recently, there's been um, the occasional, you see all sorts of things in the news, right? But there was something a few months ago where it talked about in Queensland, they wanted to change um, references in hospitals, in in labour suites. Instead of talking about mum and dad, they wanted to talk about birth parent and non-gestational parent. Now, there is an example of trying to abolish gender in entirety. That's an extreme form. Can I say, nevertheless, that in a more moderate form, the diversity lens is really important for us? Because it reminds us that in Christ, Christians are united, not uniform. In Christ, Christians are united. We are meant to be one, but we are not uniform. We are not identical and the same. 
And I think that's actually really important for us to hear as Christians uh, because, well, humans as a whole tend to stamp out diversity. We're automatically suspicious of the unfamiliar and that flows over into Christian communities at times, sadly. Okay, that's a comment about the diversity lens. Look next at the integrity lens. So the quote again from your house, the integrity lens views sex and gender in terms of the sacred integrity of maleness and femaleness stamped on one's body. Cross-gender identification is a concern because it threatens to dishonour the creational order of male and female. Most Christians, most Bible-believing Christians will emphasise the importance of the integrity lens and for very good reason. God did make us in a particular way, so who are we to tamper with something that God says is good? Uh, in general, therefore, the integrity lens suggests that men should express maleness and women should express femaleness, although a very big caveat there, maleness and femaleness is usually culturally de determined and therefore can change over time and in context. One of the great ironies for me is that I'm an ordained Anglican minister, which means that sometimes I'm required to wear a white dress to church. Living out every little boy's dream. So maleness and femaleness are important, but the question is how do you express it? And what's more, the reality is we don't live in a Genesis 1 and 2 Garden of Eden paradise anymore. So I think it's insufficient for us to say we live the way God made us, end of story. I think that's an inadequate response that fails to address the reality of sin in our world. Practically, if that's all we have to say, it can come across as lacking compassion and empathy for trans people who feel so acutely the devastating effect of sin every time they look in a mirror. Don't mishear me. I understand that even the smallest concession here can feel like the first step down the slippery slope. And that's a danger I'll return to later. But on its own, the integrity lens basically says to someone who's crippled by gender dysphoria, you just got to put up with it. And I think there is perhaps more we need to say. That brings us then finally to the disability lens. The disability lens. Look at the quote again. The disability lens views gender dysphoria as a result of living in a fallen world in which the condition is a disability, a non-moral reality to be addressed with compassion. I think we need what Yahouse calls the disability lens to remind us to meet people where they are at, to meet them in their pain and suffering and with tender compassion to try to help them the way we would any person with a disability. So what do you do if you meet someone with a disability? Will you help them manage their situation a little better? And you canvass remedies to alleviate their crippling distress. If gender dysphoria is a non-moral condition, similar to other mental illnesses, then I think it might be okay to permit some degree of cross-gender expression. In the same way that we help those who are crippled by anxiety with antidepressants. Now, I realise that most Christians will disagree with what Yahouse is proposing here. 
They'll disagree with his view that cross-gender expression is not necessarily a sin. Can I say, if that's you, then can I urge you to please be gracious in your disagreement? Uh, Sadly, that sentiment has not marked churches for many, many years. For myself, what's persuaded me that Yarhouse's approach is at least worth considering is meeting faithful, Bible-believing, God-honouring Christians and hearing of their struggles with gender dysphoria. Uh, I think of one biologically female woman uh, who's in her late 30s now and hearing her testify to decades of crippling anxiety because she hated her body and antidepressants weren't working for her. Then, hearing her hope when she read Yarhouse's book because for the first time she heard compassion beyond you just got to put up with it. I was so moved by the way in which she spoke of her relief after her mastectomy because she described how for the first time in nearly two decades she was not so at odds with her body that for finally she could start to think clearly about herself. Now, I realise that the example of a Christian surgically modifying their body is very confronting. I'm not naive. Do recall, though, that I did note earlier that all of us try to alter our physique in some way. But I also said there are no simple answers. Uh, And that's true with this woman who I have described to you. It is so complicated. See, she tried taking male hormones, but then felt overwhelmingly guilty and so has stopped. And she doesn't know what she's going to do in the longer term. For your encouragement, she continues to fix her eyes on Jesus. She's serving in her local church. She's growing to be more and more like Christ. And like all of us, she's a work in progress. And she will be until the day that Christ returns or calls her home. Now, because it's all so incredibly complicated, Yarhouse, I think, wisely limits any concession to cross-gender expression by saying, and it's there on your handout, in the least invasive way possible or what I might call a last resort approach. So for someone experiencing gender dysphoria, you start with medication to treat the psychological dysphoria. After that, you might consider cross-dressing, at first in private, maybe in public, only as a very last resort, hormonal replacement or gender reassignment surgery. Uh, Can I say at this point, I think it should never be available for adolescents I think adolescents, youth, ought not bear the burden of lifelong irreversible choices. Uh, Actually, I think it's unloving to not protect children from themselves. But at the end of the day, even the most drastic of interventions will never fully remove the suffering we all experience in our fallen world. Uh, That's because... The gospel says none of us can fully fix our broken bodies and minds 
Only Christ can. Or to put it slightly differently, if we could solve the problem, Christ died for nothing. Now, I did mention the slippery slope concern earlier, and I said I'd come back to it. I think it is a fair objection. Uh, And that means, therefore, that my advice to any Christian who's contemplating this pathway, I'd say to them, a Christian always expects ongoing suffering. A Christian always expects ongoing suffering. Now, thanks be to God, he's dealt with the ultimate cause of suffering, with sin at the cross, but you will never achieve a pain-free existence, no matter how hard you try. Even if you manage to alleviate gender dysphoria, there will always be other ways you suffer the sheer agony of not yet being fully conformed to the image of Christ. You remember that great passage in Romans 8, 28? It's there, actually, on your handout. It's a wonderfully popular memory verse, and for very good reason, but sadly, Christians tend to misquote it. Most Christians think that Romans 8 says, we know that in all good things, God works for the good of those who love him, but it doesn't. It says in all things, even in suffering, God is working for our good. One day there'll be no more tears or crying or mourning or pain, but not till then, when we're with Christ and like Christ, which is better by far. Okay, well, what I'll do at this point then is talk uh, for a few minutes about some pastoral implications. And I will do that once I find my notes that have somehow gotten out of order, which is interesting. Naha. Nope. I appear to be missing a page. This talk might get a bit shorter. Um, Let's talk then about some pastoral implications, what to do when a trans person walks into church. Um, You'll see the three things that I want to cover there. Uh, The first is to encourage us to please remember that everyone should be welcome here. Uh, This this obviously is a challenge for us. Um, I guess... My, the, the point that I, w- I want to make here is that um, if you're a trans person, what kind of reception do you think you're going to get if you walk into a church on a Sunday morning? It's not hard to answer that question, right? Uh, yeah, I think you do. Uh, which means that we have a long way to go if we want people to understand that they are welcome here, that they might come to know who Christ is. Uh, that's, of course, what happened for us in the first place, isn't it? Uh, we came to church and someone welcomed us and introduced us to Jesus. Um, that's the same for us, for any person who walks through our door. One of the really interesting questions that it's worth us reflecting on is uh, what we expect of someone when they come to church. Now, there's a little... Um, I've written a few words down there. They all start with B, just to make it memorable, because that's what preachers do, right? Um, Sometimes I think people think that what church is about is it's a place where you have to behave in a particular way so that you might come to believe what people are talking about and then ultimately you'll be invited to belong. Uh, That's a church for insiders. That's not a church for outsiders. Actually, it's the exact opposite. For us, church ought to be a place where, first and foremost those who, are, who walk in are invited to be part of our community, to belong here, over time they'll come to see what it is that we believe about Jesus 
And then, like all of us, we become conformed to the image of our Saviour. This, I think, is a big challenge for us, and I'll put it there. We can come back and reflect on it more in question time later. Please remember that everyone should be welcome here. Uh, in fact, if I can just, if I can just kind of up the ante a bit, um, I read recently uh, an observation by someone who's written well in this area, um, a guy called Preston Sprinkle. He made the comment that as the number of trans people in tr increases in our society, we ought to expect more trans people in our churches. Or more to the point, if we don't see more, it asks the question, what might we need to change? Okay, that's the first comment. Second comment, pastorally, um, please lean towards compassion rather than controversy. Lean these towards compassion rather than controversy. Um, I guess uh, the thing that I want to say here is that um, if a trans person does walk into church, uh, the reason they're here is probably not because they're a cultural warrior and, you know, they're trying to overthrow gender in entirety. That's probably not why they come to church on a Sunday morning. Now, look, I get there's times and places where we need to have those conversations, but this is probably not it. Um, so I think what I want to encourage us to do is be people who lean towards compassion rather than controversy. Now, that's tricky and it's hard at times, um, uh, I guess, it, it's hard because instinctively uh, we do find it hard to, to show compassion, I think, uh, when we see others who are different uh, or where we think that perhaps they've made choices that we disagree with. Here's a handy hint if you find it hard to instinctively show compassion. Whenever you see someone else who looks disfigured by sin, just remember how you look to others. It's a bit cheeky, but it's true, isn't it? Because if you remember that, then you're reminded of God's great compassion for us. And that really ought to make us the most compassionate people in our society. Once again, transphobia is completely unchristian in every way. Um, by saying compassion uh, and avoiding controversy, uh, what I'm saying is that, um, you know, although there's a time and place to talk about such issues, uh, it's, it's not in church on a Sunday. Uh, I'm saying try and avoid taking the bait. Try and avoid taking the bait when we're provoked even if, as Christians, we get called bigots or haters for what we might say in this area. Uh, if it's any consolation, they called Jesus' names too, and they literally crucified him. But still he prayed, Father, forgive them. They just don't know what they're doing. Ultimately, I think we're much better off trying to show how our hope is not for this world. Uh, it's passing away in its present form. Our hope is for the one that's been inaugurated by Christ. And that's the only way in which you'll ever endure any suffering. Because, you know, it's just for a little while. And the suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance produces character. And character produces hope. A hope that doesn't disappoint. Because we will be conformed to the image of Christ one day. I think that if we spoke more about our hope, even in the face of opposition, that will give us opportunities to both convey compassion and invite someone to ask us to give an answer for the reason for that hope that we have.
And so let me finish then by urging you to pray for courage and patience and support to live in the gap. And remember how I started this talk? I said that my goal was to help us better care for people in our community who want to bring honour to Jesus, and I said that that was all of us. So here's the prayer for all of us. It's a prayer for courage and patience and support to live in the gap whilst we wait for Christ's return. Now that prayer is important because it's hard to see ourselves the way that God does. It's hard to see ourselves the way that God does. So here's some encouragement to get you started. Did you know that the one who is remaking us in the image of Christ, he can already see us as we will be in perfection? Um, there's a picture at the bottom there, and here's where I'll conclude. Uh, it's a picture of perhaps one of the most famous sculptures of all time. Many of us will know it. It's Rodin's sculpture, The Thinker. Uh, I found myself wondering what it would have been like if you had been there whilst Rodin was constructing this sculpture, watching what was going on. My guess is that if you've been a casual observer, you'd be thinking things like, what the heck is he doing? <laughs> where is this all heading? I can't possibly see what this will be like. And I can imagine someone saying, hey, Rodin, that probably wouldn't have said that, would be his first name, but they said, hey, dude, what are you doing here? And I can imagine him replying something like, just hold on, just wait a minute, it'll all become clear. If pressed, he might have said, I know what this is going to look like, even if you can't see it yet. Until eventually he downs tools and he says, I'm finished, it's done, and it is worthy of all praise. Let me pray, and then we'll see how we go on questions. Finish then thy new creation, pure and spotless let us be. Let us see thy great salvation perfectly restored in thee, changed from glory into glory, till in heaven we take our place, till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love and praise. Amen. Jeff, um, rather than series, we'll just have questions for Jeff on this talk, which lets me and Kate off the hook. Great. Um, can I also say, sermon notes is like my recurring nightmare, and I'm so glad it happened to you and not me. Um, but you coped admirably. Well done. Uh, what I'm going to get us to do. To to the people around you, if you're happy or just think on your own, uh, what's your question uh, from this morning's talk? Uh, maybe just uh, ask that to the other person, and then in a minute we'll um, have some of those uh, come to Jeff. Um, yes, so do that.
Um, le let me just say, Jeff, thank you. Um, I, f I feel like it would have been easy to kind of address this issue with a, a simple but ultimately simplistic answer. And thank you for, for not doing that and entering into the complexity of it. Um, and the, the fact that we're dealing with, with people here, this isn't uh, simple. So um, thank you. Yeah, thanks, Ben. And look, as part of what I didn't say, and, and I should have, is I hope you hear even from me, I'm not certain about what we ought to do in all in, in with every question in this area like genuinely um, I really appreciate the chance to be able to, to talk and to think with you because it is highly complicated and yeah I think Ben's Ben and I talked uh, for a while actually before uh, in the lead up to this as I tried to explain what I was thinking about both of us acknowledged if there was a simple answer people would have worked it out <laughs> and there isn't which doesn't mean that therefore we give up but it does mean that at one level I, should, I didn't say this at the start because this would have put you off. You're going to come away from today with more questions than answers. Um, but hopefully that's the start of the conversation, which, if I can draw the parallel, in Christian churches, we did not do this well with the challenge of homosexuality in the 80s, 90s and early 2000s. We just ignored the whole thing and you reap what you sow. And I really hope we don't do that. So, mm. thanks. Do well, you want to take questions? And answers. Yeah, yeah questions. You. Things you'd like to ask. Anything at all. Yeah, let's start with Sal. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, this is in the missing page of notes. Um, so what, what do I do about pronouns? So here's my view. Uh, my view is that if I meet a trans person who introduces themselves with a particular name and uses a, and expects a particular pronoun, I will use do whatever they say. Um, that's not necessarily because I think everything about why they've chosen that I agree with. Probably I don't. But I figure actually as a matter of courtesy, if I want to continue a conversation, then I have to be willing to do that. I know some Christians feel uncomfortable about that, and I understand there's some broader implications. So, again, I didn't touch on this, but in a school's context, uh, what do you do? How do you understand that? And so, you know, for example, at the school to which my daughters go, um, now let me think, is this public? Yeah, I think it's public. I think what they're, th sorry, I think what they're reflecting on is how they might use a, if, if a child wants a different name, they're willing to use that, but if a child wants to use a different pronoun, a different gendered pronoun, they're less likely to, um, to do that. So, which is just my way of saying it's complicated, but as I think about the issue, if I want to have a conversation with a trans person, I think just out of respect, I have to be willing to use the way in which they self-identify, um, although I understand that some people would find that hard. But thanks. Catherine. Yes. Do you want to just, are you happy to take your mask off just so people can hear you? Yeah, thank you. Now, are you in general practice? Yeah, okay. So, Catherine's, in case you didn't hear, um, uh, a transgender couple who have a baby who they're raising non-binary. Look, to be honest, I don't know. Um, it, yeah, like, let me just say the obvious, I don't know, because there's whole questions around individual freedom that is a pre that's premised in our society and yet always with constraints, um, which we all submit to and agree to. So I don't know how that plays out in this regard. Um, I, without, and of course I know nothing at all about medicine other than the fact that I'm very grateful for people like you when I'm sick and when I'm healthy I never want to see you. Um, we've talked about this over the years. Uh, I, I would encourage you to do, as I know you will, to do the best that you can to help them with the medical issues that are raised 
um, and to the extent that you're invited for input, uh, to be willing to grant it, and again, I know Catherine well, in a way that's clearly gracious and recognising people make their own decisions and that as a society we want to be supportive of people even if we disagree with their decisions. Um, that's the kind of people that we want to be. So, yeah, I'm not really sure how to answer that question. It is a good example, though, of what we feel the tension of because when subsequent generations are being taught something that we actually know is not the way God has made us, we know that it's going to end out badly. Um, but, sorry, I'm, ra I'm rambling a bit here. Th this is the gift and the burden of living in Australia where it's not totalitarian and you're not forced to do a particular thing. So individuals make choices and they experience the consequences of that. Um, if you lived in a different country in a different time, you wouldn't have that gift or burden of individual choice. So, yeah, thanks. Lindsay. Yes. Um, and I guess my question is around that. Um, obviously, as I said, we do want to be neighbourhood. Um, how do you define someone who does have gender dysphoria, gender that um, does become quite extreme? And uh, I think particularly for males, if you like females, the Yeah, thank you. And, and I'm not putting words into your mouth. There's every chance you're actually thinking of a real-life situation, which just helps, helps you to understand just what's at stake here. So, uh, yeah, look, um, what I was trying to say in the comment about youth and adolescence is um, this is an observation about our society. I think our society is moving towards a situation where we're saying, actually, to enable children to express themselves fully, we need to remove any constraint around them, and to fail to do that actually is harmful. Um, I understand why people would say that. I just disagree. Um, I, think, I think none of us are capable of consistently good, mature decisions all the time. Um, looking around the room, those of us who are older will say, yeah, that, that's <laughs> there's no guarantee that age makes you more wise, but I do know for certain that adolescence is a tricky time <laughs> for everyone and I think therefore that although I'm not saying deny any relief or compassion I am saying choose the least permanent things and the least invasive things because so much is at stake and the um, as I said the um, the shift in our society is to say you are being harmful and disrespectful to a child if you don't allow them to make the decision that they want. I just don't think that that's actually loving to people. I don't want to be paternalistic or, um, you know, in that sense, except for the fact that we do recognise the difference between a child and an adult and a child's ability to make good decisions as opposed to an adult's in theory. So that's the kind of issue that I'm trying to reflect on. But I do hear what you're saying and it's, it's why, therefore, actually, in, in all of this, I don't think there is a simple 
yes, no, black, white answer. It's not to say that there's not truth and, and lie, but I do think we just need to be a little more cautious. And again, you've given a good example, which is a really bad way for us to develop general policy. That is, the extremes are never the way to do that. And I know you're not suggesting that. You want a general approach that allows for exceptions, not the other way around. And for better or for worse, again, the society we live in, what do you read about in the newspaper? Or, oh, so what do you see online? You only ever hear about the extreme cases. So, so that's tricky. But thanks, Lindsay.